there's a sense of quiet, a sense of stillness that, Lord, brings us close to you. And there is that sense, Lord, that as you come into our presence, there is that, that, that sense of eternity that stills our souls. And in, out of that, Lord, we know that the goal of spirituality is that we might know him who is from the beginning. Lord, I pray that even now in our worship and that, Lord, in the speaking of your word, we would know you, for you are from the beginning. And in knowing you, that, Lord, we might also know what is the passion of your heart. So that, Lord, as we, as we gather together in this, in this place, it might be a still moment where we are gathered in your presence in a very wonderful and a treasured way. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As I trace the, uh, j- my own personal journey to faith, th- there was one of those moments that came that I will never forget. It came toward the end of a university debate, and representatives of various religious groups and societies were allowed an opportunity to present the tenets of their faith and, and, and go through a little bit of an outline of their teaching. But as the representative for Christianity had his turn, he came to the podium and he began by saying three words. He said, Christianity is Christ. Oh, he said much more than that. He did fill out his time. But, but with those three words, I, my, 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 my mind was captivated because he had, in that had said it all. Christianity is Christ. For that is so simple and so profound. If you want to know anything about God, you look to Jesus Christ. We read in Colossians chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So that if you want to know what God is like, how he acts, and what you can expect out of a relationship with him, especially a relationship where you are to be as close to him as a child is with a father, you look to Jesus. Christianity is Christ. And we read in First John, 4, I mean, in John, the Gospel of John, fourteen verse nine: Anyone who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The essence of our of our faith is is to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ, not not a, 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 a capture of knowledge, not to be found in a stack of books or a pile of papers but it is a relationship with the living word, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Christianity is Christ. Now that debate was years ago and in a, in a galaxy far, far away when I was formerly known as Luke Skywalker. And the, speecher, uh, the speaker at that time was Josh McDonald and the place was the University of Illinois. But I remember walking away with a resolve that if I were to know anything about my faith, I would need to be utterly familiar with Jesus Christ. And so in my life and throughout my ministry, I have kept a study of the gospel fresh on my heart. And over my years in ministry, I have made it my my mission to move through the gospels, each one, all four, one by one, with care. And that's why we have, in fact, been on a journey through the gospel of Luke throughout this year and will continue it throughout the rest of the summer. For it seems as if summer has now begun, has it not? And so as we do, as we go through this gospel, the gospel of Luke, let me reset the focus, uh, remind you of that focus. 
In ways, this Sunday is almost like a clinical exam because we are looking at Jesus up close and personal and asking ourselves the question, what is he like? How does he feel? How does he act? How does he treat people? What does he do with them? And what is his passion? This is not just an academic exercise. Those questions have to be quite personal because when we ask how does he deal with people and how, what does he do with them, it is a very personal issue. What does he think about me? How does he feel about me? And how will he treat me if I were to be in a relationship with him? What will he do with me? Examine the gospel and you will find those answers. So putting these questions on the table, I'm going to ask you to rejoin with me again in the Gospel of Luke because we come to Luke chapter 15. And as I've outlined my my understanding of the Gospel of Luke, when we come to chapter 15, there could be a heading set over the next, next few chapters through 17 and 18 of God's heart for the lost. Now let me remind you one thing about the Gospel of Luke. There is one verse in chapter 19 of the Gospel that does in fact state the entire theme around which the Gospel is written. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. There in one sentence we have the mission of Jesus Christ stated in in clear and unmistakable terms. And we found those three words as the outline of the Gospel. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man did what? He came to do what? To seek and to do what? To save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. Now, the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke describe the reality of his birth. He really did come. He came. That's the first. And in the last few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we have the cross and the open grave where he saves the lost. But in the middle, we witness his ministry, where he is seeking. Three words, came, seek, and save. And the Son of Man is on that mission. But all for the sake of those who are described in that one word that stands at the core of his heart, the lost. They are what dominate his passion. And who are the lost? In the Bible, the lost are those who are living away from God, those who have been separated from their Creator. In Romans chapter 3, we read, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which becomes a fairly exhaustive group of people who could become the lost. It is all. And in verse 11, it says, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. These are the lost. If you study through the Bible, you ask yourself the question, what are the lost like? And you find that they are lonely, even though they may be surrounded by friends. They were meant to enjoy company with God, but their sin has driven them away from Him, and as a result has created a fracture that affects all other relationships. So they are lonely, they are defeated, because no matter how hard they try to do their very best, because they are cut off from God, they lack the will and the strength to do what is right to perfection. They are lonely, they are defeated, they are also troubled because no matter what they do to forget the wrong that they have done or to avoid the consequences of their actions and their sins, they can't find any forgiveness. And so they are troubled. 
And they are also insecure because no matter how many needs they seek to fill the hole in their lives, there is still that, that, that crater at the center of their heart that cannot be filled. The lost are people who are in need of hope and of, and of happiness and of fellowship and of security. And God knows that. And he feels that for them. And for that reason, then we do read, the Son of God, man came to seek and to save the lost. That is his passion. That is what defines the core of his heart and explains then the very scene that we find here at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And if there were any title for this section and for this summer, it would be, in fact, God's heart for the lost. So look at me with me at, at Luke 15, verse 1. There we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered to themselves, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It looks like he's actually enjoying that. He's fulfilling his passion by being with the lost. He welcomes sinners. He eats with them. Now, it's obvious that there is something unique about Jesus. He was no ordinary religious teacher. That had dawned on them. His actions, his teaching, his compassion had obviously attracted quite a following. And, and, and we read that, that the following was filled with some pretty interesting characters, tax collectors and sinners, you can almost imagine out of the taverns and up from the cellars, from back alley hideouts, smoke-filled offices, gutters, shanties, penthouses, slum houses, we read all had come to Jesus. All the tax collectors, uh, tax gatherers, and the sinners were coming to him, we read, to listen to him. Now, some of you may note, in the New International Version of the Bible, the word sinner is in quotations, and that's an important note to have. The reason they put it in quotes is because that was a judgment made uh, by the, the Pharisees. This man gathers together, in their mind, with sinners. The Pharisees had made that judgment. Because when they looked at the people that were coming to Jesus, that is what they saw. They saw sinners. That's not what they saw when they looked at themselves in the mirror. It's what they saw when they saw the people gathering around Jesus. But when they looked at themselves, as far as they were concerned, they were okay. Sin was something that actually belonged to somebody else. There was a book back in the 70s that was a popular bestseller. It was called, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Well, their book was, I'm okay and you're a sinner. And with that sense of pride and prejudice, these Pharisees did everything in their power to isolate themselves from sinners. I love the way William Barclay, uh, Barclay puts it. He writes, he says, The Pharisaic regulations laid it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him as a guardian of an orphan, and do not make him a custodian of charitable funds, do not accompany him on a journey. As a Pharisee, you are forbidden to be the guest of any such person or even have them as guests. You are forbidden so far as possible to have any business dealing with him, avoid all contact with them. Why? Because they are sinners. And so the Pharisees, they had spent their entire life seeking to ignore the lost and, and keep them at a distance. But along came Jesus, and he gets them up close and personal. 
And he touches them. And he calls them by name, and he heals them, and he forgives them, and he cares for them, and he eats with them. He does everything in his power to get close to them. And so the Pharisees mutter. Now, I'm not quite sure if Jesus actually heard their mutterings. Mutter, 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 mutter. What were you saying? I don't know if Jesus actually heard their words, but he certainly read their heart. He knew what was going on. And so he took the initiative here to to explain his actions. And I have it on your sermon outline as the pursuit of Christ. He's explaining his pursuit. He says, Jesus then told them a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and then go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. It's here on my shoulders. I'm holding them. Now, there's no question that this is probably one of the most familiar stories of the Bible. In it, Jesus takes the, the Pharisees on a mental journey. That, that we often see Jesus on in the pictures that we have of him with gentle little sheep. The, the, the parable is a familiar one. But he's taking the Pharisees on a mental journey that was very familiar to them, and, and, he, and he walks them out into the craggy hillsides and the steep valleys of Judea where shepherds tend their flocks. And by telling them this story, Jesus connects a number of critical dots in their minds in order to make certain connections that draw them to the truth. The first dot... It's a familiar scene for them. The chances are a number of these people, in fact, were shepherds or had been shepherds or knew shepherds or related to shepherds, but they knew what a shepherd was and what sheep were like. And so when Jesus says here, just suppose one of you, it it was kind of a funny thing for him to say because he didn't have to suppose anything. He knew that they knew what he was talking about. It was a business that they were familiar with. And a flock of 100 sheep, well, that is a standard flock. And the counting of the sheep was just a matter of inventory. They could put their pencil on the first dot because they understood exactly what he was talking about and there was no problem. But then he drew a line to the second dot. And with this story, Jesus then brings God into the scene. In the Old Testament, when they looked to find a way to describe how God cares for his people, it was put in shepherd terms. That's what we have with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 11, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have their young. God is identified already as a shepherd. And when using that illustration, the second dot appears. He brings God to the scene. You know what shepherds are like human-wise. You know that that relates to what God is like in all of his being. And so the dots are beginning to connect. And then Jesus adds a third dot by telling the story as a question. He doesn't tell this story just as a story. There's a question mark at the end. What do you do when you lose something? There's the dot. Do you know what it's like 
to lose something. What happens in your heart when you have lost something, especially a treasure? What do you do when that happens? Now, I don't know about you, but when I lose something, even the simplest things, I, I tend to go a little nutty, okay? But I really go insane when I lose something that is special, when I lose my keys or when I lose my wallet. It's almost like the, the, the world stops, doesn't it? Does, that, does it work for you like that? How many of you lost something over this last week? Oh, come on. Okay, I'm going to drop that other illustration right out. That's off the table here. Okay. But I know if I lose something, you know, sweat breaks out. I lose my glasses. I know I'm in serious trouble. Ask yourself, what do you do when you lose something? Even more than that, take it one step further, what do you do when your search is successful? Especially when it's a search that is successful because it's a surprise. You didn't think to look there, but you looked there and you found it. What do you do? How do you feel? You feel like throwing a party, don't you? And and in that party, you come up with all sorts of personal resolutions. I'm never going to do that again. It's always going to be different. It's going to be labeled. I'm always going to put it in the right place. I am going to make things right into the future. Now, if you understand that, You can draw a line from the dots all the way through the story and that will take you directly to the heart of God. It's the pure passion that motivates the pursuit of Jesus Christ. The lost ones matter to him. And he has a plan for their lives. And those who have wandered and who are at risk, they matter to him and they move him. They move him so much that he actually comes to earth. He came to seek and to save them. And you've got to love it because Jesus looks at the lost with a compassion and does not hesitate on his part. And I suppose the obvious point of the parable could end right there. Note, who is Jesus telling this parable to? In verse 2, it is addressed to them, and it's the Pharisees. And I suppose that even they would have gotten the obvious point as Jesus faced them to tell them the story. They could probably see the sinners in the background, and if they had any shred of compassion for these people that they were sharing space with in front of Jesus, they would see them as lost sheep. And that would have been just fine, because that's how we tend to also look at the parable. We think of Jesus looking at somebody else, because they are the sinners. And uh, if I have a shred of uh, compassion in my heart, I can appreciate the fact that Jesus loves them. I might even have an appreciation that Jesus loves you. (laughs) But I'm okay, and you're a sinner. Uh, There is a point to be made there that will explain the relationship that sinners have with Jesus. But I want you to note something. He does not end it there. He presses the point one step further in a very loving and a gracious way. In verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not, and I'm going to add a little extra word there, feel the need to repent. I want you to be very careful how you read the last part of that verse. 
for it, it raised there on the surface, those who do not need to repent. And you may wonder, are there actually human beings out there who see themselves as being so perfect and so holy that they feel that they have no need to repent? Is it possible that there are people out there who have taken grace for granted and have, have maybe come to know Jesus Christ and they've got the name of God and they've got their theology together and they are now comfortable, so comfortable in their faith that they feel no need to repent. For in themselves they are righteous. Jesus, I believe, is being very gracious here. He could have simply named names and then called the Pharisees out. He could have said that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees did in verse 1. They, they looked at all who gathered around Jesus as a group, and he gave them, they gave them a name. They were name-namers. They said, sinners, you want to have names? Jesus says, I'll name names. I could say Pharisees but I'm going to say people who do not feel the need to repent. And Jesus was a little bit more subtle here as well. He looked at the Pharisees, who, and then he saw them for who they were. A group of people who, who did not see the need to repent, who had, a, had no compelling reason to repent, and who saw themselves as just fine, righteous Together people huddled together with others of like spirit and who rejected the notion that they had any need together to repent. And you have to ask yourself the question, do you think any of them ever gave heaven a reason to rejoice? Do you think that any of them could ever say with any confidence that they had ever given God any reason to throw a party? Do you think that any of them wished that God would embrace them with the joy that he was embracing that one lost sheep? And just possibly, if you carry that thought down, is it possible that they might have envied those for whom heaven was throwing a party? I wish they were throwing a party for me. I want you to keep those thoughts in mind. Because there's a story that was told by Ann Ortland that turned this parable around in my mind a number of years ago. And it's really helped me understand something very deep and profound. She wrote, she goes, several years ago, she and her husband, Ray Ortland, who is the pastor of the Lake Avenue Presbyterian Church in, uh, or Congregational Church in Pasadena, they were kneeling on cushions uh, in a long, low dining room table in a private hotel suite in Japan. The air was seasoned with celery and leeks and unknown things, and she writes, through a missionary interpreter, an important Japanese industrialist was addressing my husband. And he, 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 as the industrialist spoke, he said this, I have come to this city, and I have invited you to join our family at dinner tonight so that I might ask you a question. During the past year, my son has become a Christian. And I admit that he was rebellious and hard to handle, but now he is respectful. He is a good boy. But as you know, Christians in Japan are a very small minority, and they are looked down upon as being low class and disloyal disloyal to family and to country. 
And then he said something that was just so profound. He said, there are so many sons in Japan. Why would this happen to my son and to me? God suddenly gave this translating missionary a parable, and he said to him, suppose a shepherd wanted to take his flock to a better pasture, but the way across a ra- was, a, was across a raging stream, and one ram was particularly frightened and refused to budge. How would you, as a shepherd, get that dear sheep to make the trip over the river to the better pasture? Might I suggest that he would take his lamb, his precious lamb, and put it on the other side first? For then he would follow to be with him. As Anne Ortland writes, she goes, a tear ran down the father's cheek. And he said those words in Japanese, ah, so. I listened to that story and I think maybe we got it wrong. Maybe this parable should have been named the parable of the found sheep rather than the lost sheep. Maybe, just maybe, it was the 99 who were really lost. Maybe, just maybe, it was the 99 who needed to stand at the edge of the stream of life and watch the shepherd go out and see what happened with the rescue of the one and the joy that, it, that, 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 that erupted. And maybe just because the joy shared by that lost lamb in the arms of the great shepherd, it would have touched the heart of that entire flock. And here and there, maybe possibly 99 times, with a thought and a yearning that says, I really wish I could be held like the shepherd, by the shepherd just like that. Maybe, just maybe, the example of that one sheep would have been moved, enough to move. One, two, three, 87, 88... 9899 to cross the stream and trust themselves into the embrace of a shepherd who loved them the fact is at the end of the story Jesus is talking about human beings and not sheep and the fact is <laughs> you and I can do what sheep simply cannot do we can repent And with our repentance, Jesus takes us into his arms with rejoicing. We can repent. I tell you that in the same way Jesus says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. We can repent. You can repent. I can repent. We can refresh our repentance for a grace that we have come to take for granted. And we can come, like the invitation is made to the Lord's table with each and every one, come with a heart of confession, open to Jesus so that he can take you in his arms and embrace you just the way a loving shepherd can. You can turn in your heart and you can bow in your spirit and you can surrender with your will and you can abandon yourself in the hands of the Lord who loved you and gave himself for you. Sheep don't have that capability. You do. I do. And we can do it right now. For the Son of Man came for you and for me, for all of us. He came to seek and to save 
and to embrace. I have that image in my own heart as I approach the Lord's table. And I pray that this would be the image that you have in your heart as well. That, that, that you come and you, and you set aside all the things that have taken your attention away from, from the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And you say, find me, Jesus. In this moment, as I take the bread and as I take the cup, I am willing to be found. I am a willing captive of your grace. Embrace me and never let me go. Would you pray with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, we do confess to you that there are times that our familiarity with with life and with righteousness cause us to take certain things for granted. And yet, Lord, you awaken us to the true nature of, of your heart, that you really do love us, that you really do care to have fellowship, to take us into your arms, to call us not sheep, but sons and daughters, men and women of God. And so, Lord, as we share in the in this, which is your Lord's table, the, the taking of the bread and the taking of the cup. With that, we declare ourselves willing captives of your grace. Take us, Lord Jesus, take us, take me. And Lord, in the times that we have, as we share in this, Lord, in the quietness, Lord, let that be the prayer of each and every heart. I am yours, Lord Jesus. I am yours for you are mine. This I pray in the powerful and the wonderful name of the one who does love us and who does give himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.